uh, or warn them of the dangers uh, that they can be put in. Uh, and, and then the, you know, James 3 tops it off by saying, not many of you, my brothers, should be teachers, for we know that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And uh, lots of warnings there. It, it is a, a burden, and, uh, and so I thank you for all. Uh, I know that there are several people that pray for us uh, regularly, but, uh, and, and especially even over the last month, I know of some. Uh, and, uh, but please be in a special prayer for Josh and for Laura uh, this week. Uh, let's pray. Dear God, uh, we do pray for, for uh, Pastor Josh and for Laura and uh, their time together that they may be uh, refreshed, renewed, uh, and ready to be redeployed uh, in, in your service. We thank you for uh, the love that they have for this uh, congregation, the love that they have for you that is displayed through it. Um, Lord, as we get into your word and we uh, learn what it means to be a, a, a unified church uh, and then the dangers that come from, uh, from division within it, uh, Lord, just humble us, uh, break us, and soften our hearts uh, that we may indeed be fellow workers for the truth. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Um, a few, uh, oh gosh, uh, I think almost two years ago, uh, we were going through Hebrew, or we were going through a ser sermon series, and we challenged the uh, church to, uh, to memorize the first four verses of Hebrews, but um, whether you uh, still got those memorized or, or, or not, uh, page 1001 is, near, is your pew Bibles. Uh, throughout, uh, we'll be going through uh, uh, the Bible and going through a lot of different uh, verses. There is nothing uh, to be ashamed of in using the index in the very front, and uh, um, because uh, they're not in alphabetical order like, uh, like other books. So, uh, but um, page 1001 is what we're going to start with in, in Hebrews 1. I'm sorry, and the children are dismissed. <laughs> they're already doing that right now. So, um, so <laughs> I don't blame them. <laughs> so Hebrews uh, 1, 1 through 4 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." Last week, we opened up the service by talking a little bit about how huge the universe is uh, and, and talking in like billions and trillions of, of light years. And the, the reason uh, that we did that was just to get an idea of how big God is because if God created this entire universe through Jesus Christ, as Hebrews tells us, and he upholds it by the word of his power, then God's even bigger than that. And that alone ought to drive us to our knees to worship him. But it's not just how big God is uh, that he made the planets and the stars and, the, and the, the, the galaxies and the entire universe, but that he is at work in the tiny details as well. I was reading this week in a, uh, in a book that there are 228 individual distinct muscles in the head of a caterpillar. Uh, 
That's pretty incredible. <laughs> I've been called a musclehead before, but, but, uh, but I mean, a cat 228, that there are uh, as many as 6 million leaves on the average el elm tree. And if you pull off one of those leaves and you look at it, you'll see hundreds of branches of, of veins. And the purpose of those is to, is to bring water up from, you know, from the roots all the way through the tree into those leaves. And then it takes air in, uh, and it takes carbon dioxide in and, and energy from the sun, and it converts that into sugar that goes back into the plants, and then animals can use that sugar, and then it puts out oxygen, so it maintains the balance of our 19% you know, oxygen in our atmosphere so that we can survive, because too little, would, we'd suffocate, and too much, we'd catch on fire. I mean, God's, God's amazingly uh, um, involved in the, in the little uh, de details uh, not just for the universe to be created, but for us to live within that universe. So we not only worship an incomprehensibly huge God who's, you know, in the, in the scale of the universe and billions and trillions of, of light years, and, and, but an omniscient and an omnipresent and a, an omnipotent God who is at work at the, at the microscopic level, at the molecular level, at the, at the atomic level even. And on top of that, we worship a God who says he is holy. And that means set apart, you know, pure, undefiled. He's not only holy, but in Revelation we, in, and elsewhere through the Bible, we see that he is holy, holy, holy. And the reason that that's repeated is to emphasize that it, it's just complete. He is completely holy. And while God is holy, 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 we are not. The Bible tells us in, in Romans 3 that, that we have all sinned, that we've, we've come short of God's glory, that the, the wages of that sin, what, what that sin earns us is death. And then in Ephesians 2, we see that there's nothing we have the power to do. There's, there's no works we can do to get rid of that sin, that it's only God through his knowing that we would sin from the very beginning of this, of this creation and knowing uh, that we would be unable to do anything about it, that he provided his son, that those who believed in him, who accepted his sacrifice, his resurrection, and, and what he is doing now today in this world, if we accepted him, turned away from our own, our own sins, that we could be reconciled to this holy, holy, holy God. And that is the good news of Christ's gospel. Jesus, just before he left this earth, uh, and, and ascended on high. Hebrews said, you know, at the right hand of the majesty on high. Before he, he did that, he gave a command to the church. He said to go and make disciples of all nations. And that's Matthew 28. And then in Acts 1, he said to, to go spread his gospel to the very ends of the earth. And that's why over the last weeks, we have been going through the book of 3 John, because it talks about partnering with missionaries who bring that gospel to the ends of the earth so that others, all nations, can hear and receive and act upon the gospel. Romans, if you flip back just a few pages from, from uh, Hebrews, uh, Romans chapter 10 says this. starting in verse 13. It says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach 
unless they are sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And then we're going to move forward to our sermon text today um, in 3 John, page 1026 in your pew Bible, but almost all the way uh, to to the end here. The first eight verses, we're going to be on uh, verses 9 and 10, but, but we need to go back to those first eight, eight verses to see how we got here. It says, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on a journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. The book of 3 John tells us how we can partner with missionaries, to be fellow workers of the truth. Uh, As they pursue this mission, we participate in this mission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, to make disciples of all nations. John starts this letter uh, by by talking to Gaius, who is among a group of Christians who are walking in the truth. He's giving them joyful encouragement, and then he gives them instructions, exhorting them to receive these missionaries, to send them out in a manner worthy of God, and then to join them that they might be fellow workers for the truth. And then in the second half, he he starts the second half of his letter with a a warning, speaking about a a man named Diotrephes, Diotrephes, a person of the church who's chosen a different path than has Gaius. Diotrephes illustrates this to us that even if we hear this call to join in mission and seek to meet the call, maybe even in good faith, sometimes that mission can be hindered, it can be obstructed, and even prevented. And we hear a lot, right? We just heard in our prayer request this morning from our, our, our missionaries to Asia that there are obstructions to the gospel in Asia, and that those are coming from outside the church, that the, the government is putting uh, greater restrictions and maybe even persecutions. We hear about the church meeting underground in secret, that people that do come to faith are, are giving up quite a bit. Sometimes their they're, they're literal lives, other times they're, they're metaphorical lives, they're, 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 uh, their relationships, their families even, to come and follow Christ. But if we're honest with ourselves, uh, and we ought to be, the real challenges to the church's mission often come from within the church itself. When I talk to people about why they have rejected Christianity, walked away from the faith, never come to the faith, um, or why they've left uh, one church to to come to another, or leaving our church to go to another, uh, most often I hear that the actions of other people within the church, sometimes us, actually very often us as the pastors, uh, the leaders inside the church, that those have driven those decisions. Uh, and, and, and likewise, when I, when I talk to missionaries uh, ab- about uh, what is hurting their efforts or where the wounds are coming from that they're receiving in the field, 
very often it is not anyone outside the church. It's fellow workers for the truth, p- people that are working with them uh, in, in, their, in their own missions organization or maybe with an associated church, maybe a church back home, that they're the ones that often obstruct or hinder uh, the mission. I mean, you probably know somebody uh, who has left the church or, or who will not come uh, to the church, who's rejected even the faith itself, walked away from that uh, because of something that someone in the church, someone who calls themselves uh, Christians uh, or, or a Christian has done to them, has, has wounded them. Uh, in, in a Pew survey, uh, when uh, evangelicals uh, are rated by other pe- people who are not evangelicals, only one-third of, of non-evangelicals uh, rate evangelical Christians positively. Um, matter of fact, the only people that really rate evangelical Christians positively overall are other evangelical Christians. Um, so we've got an, an image problem. Now, some of that, of course, is the, is the offense that Jesus' name will cause. But a lot of it's just the way that we present, how we witness uh, to who Christ is. And we're not always a good witness for that. And not only um, are we good at wounding those around us, we're pretty good at wounding others in the church and definitely at wounding our our missionaries. And that comes often from our mixed up priorities, um, us pursuing our own desires instead of being focused on on being fellow workers for the truth, moving that gospel or moving that gospel into the world. And again, this is sad, uh, but it shouldn't surprise us. The church is made up of sinful people, and sinful people commit sin. And, and sin hurts people, and it's a bad witness. And so while the, the first eight verses of Third John talk about the right way to do things, the next half of, of the letter starts off with some of the dangers of how not to do these things. And those, so those first two verses, uh, um, verses 9 and 10, say, I have written something to the church, But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. We don't know much about Diotrephes except what's, uh, what's here. This is the only place he appears in the Bible. We can assume, though, that he, he's in the church, uh, and he's probably a leader in the church because he has the ability to hinder uh, their, uh, the mission, but also to, to uh, kick people out or, or push people out of the church. And Jesus warned us about leaders, influential people in the church when he said uh, what, what Bill re- read this morning, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. It says uh, after that, you will know or you will recognize them by their fruits. And so the fruits of this, uh, of diatrophies in particular, but also some of these, uh, these influential people who have got things other than God's gospel in their focus are uh, uh, pride and selfishness, uh, rejection of godly wisdom and, uh, and godly rebuke, slander and gossip, refusing to serve the gospel and hindering the mission. You start with pride and selfishness. John writes that, that uh, Diotrephes likes to put himself first. The Greek word for that is uh, protophileo, and it's actually stronger than he likes to put himself first. Uh, so, uh, I'm sorry, it's uh, phileo proteo. And, and, and it's, uh, so philo means love. So he, it's not just that he likes this. He, 
he, he seeks it. He loves it. It's, it's part of what he really uh, enjoys. Proteo means to make oneself first or to be first. So he loves to be first. He loves to make himself first. He's like the religious leaders who, whom Jesus condemned. If we, if we go uh, backwards to the Gospel of, of Matthew, uh, chapter 23, he tells us to beware of, of leaders like this. Matthew 23, uh, verses 3 through 6. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they love to make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Jesus commanded that we should seek rather than, or seek to serve rather than to be served. But uh, Diotrephes wants to be served rather than, than to serve himself. Scripture instructs us, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Diotrephes has done the opposite. And when he's called on this, he rejects wisdom and godly rebuke. The last uh, phrase of of verse 9, if you've got the ESV, says that he does not acknowledge our authority. The original language says more like he he does not welcome us or he does not receive us. John has written to the church, but Diotrephes has not received what John has written. He has not received the emissaries even that John has sent. And maybe it's, it's, that uh, message was one of instruction and training. Maybe it was harsher. Maybe it was rebuke, uh, reproof. We know that uh, from 2 Timothy 3.16 that God's word does all of these things. Right? It, it, it does teaching, reproof, correction, and training. And regardless of what the message was, Diotrephes has refused that. Scripture says uh, in, in Proverbs 27, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Of one who is full loathes honey, but to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. Like a bird that strays from the nest is a man who strays from his home. Oil and perfume makes the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from earnest counsel. But Diotrephes has has rejected that. We are called to accept those faithful wounds in earnest counsel. But again, uh, Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, right, fools despise wisdom and instruction. Then one of the the ways that we react when we do uh, get that kind of correction, lots of times we try to push it onto somebody else. We, uh, We deny, 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 make counter accusations. So, uh, what you learn in government and the military sometimes uh, is uh, this idea that someone tells you what you've done wrong and so you try to deflect it to others. And the way that Diotrephes does this is slander and, and gossip. So speaking evil and gossiping are the, are the words that are actually used here uh, in, in there. That it's the same root word um, 
uh, for, uh, in 1 Timothy 5.13, which condemns uh, gossip, says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. From Proverbs 34, yet Diotrephes is doing the opposite again. He's, he's speaking evil, he's gossiping and slandering. During World War II, there was a, uh, uh, one of the, the um, uh, messages that went out to, to safeguard the mission was that loose lips sink ships. Well, loose lips in the church hurt the mission also. Not, not because it gives the enemy uh, intelligence about where that ship is to sink it, but it, it starts to sink the ship through our own actions. It creates division. It creates wounds within the church. And then in this, too, we see uh, in Diotrephes' actions that just uh, even though John just spent some time commending Gaius and other Christians for their faithful efforts in supporting missionaries, that Diotrephes is refusing to welcome them. He's being offered the same opportunity as Gaius, he, that, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. But in his love for putting himself first, he is refusing to welcome the brothers. And by refusing to welcome him, he then is unable to participate in sending them and, and then supporting them also. You know, so often we come to church uh, or to a group within the church seeking to see what we can gain for ourselves. Um, we talk about, well, we, we left that church because we weren't being fed. Or we left that church because it wasn't doing anything for us. Uh, the youth group uh, wasn't big enough. Not a problem here lately. Um, the, uh, we didn't have the right program. We didn't have the right Sunday school uh, that I needed uh, without talking about what is God asking me to provide. Lots of times we leave just because we want to gather with people that are more like us. Um, we don't want to gather with those uh, who are unlike us, whether it's the way we dress, the way we look, the way we talk. Um, uh, we value other things greater than what really should bind us, which is the love of Christ. But Jesus said that if we're going to follow him, we need to deny ourselves. In Mark chapter 8, he says, if anyone will come after me, he must first deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Even to the point of losing our lives for his sake. Jesus doesn't save us from sacrifice. He calls us to it. Romans 12:1 specifically says that. You see, Jesus wasn't some guy that just came and told everyone to be nice to each other. He came with a tough, tough message. Jesus spoke not only of God's love, we read in Luke 12:47 and other places of his judgment of man's sin and his consequences, of the need to repent from those sins, to turn toward him, to follow him even to the cross. And so if we are to be Christ-like, we are not only called to preach his gospel, to act upon it, uh, but to do so even if it means suffering unjustly. In the book of 1 Peter, which is very close, just a little bit back from, from 3 John, says this in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 24 say, 
For this, to this, you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore his sins on, in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By, your, by his wounds, you have been healed. When we seek our own needs instead of uh, those of the gospel, we hinder the mission, right? The, this pride, the selfishness, um, the rejection of wisdom, and rebuke, slander, gossip, the refusal to serve the gospel leads only to this, not only to the destruction of the individual, but it hurts the mission. Not to con- content to refuse the, the, this uh, um, wisdom himself, he, Diotrephes now hinders others from doing the same. We are commanded to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. However, a wolf in sheep's clothing will climb over anyone to get his own way. Anyone who gets in the way of his love for himself. These are some of the fruits that help us to recognize who the wolf in sheep's clothing is He serves himself, he rejects counsel and correction from the church, he slanders and and gossips about others, he refuses to work for the gospel, and he hinders the mission, hurting missionaries and their fellow workers in the process. But God calls us to bear good fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. Instead of jealousy and selfish ambition, we are called to embrace the wisdom that comes down from above, which is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to wisdom, full of mercy and good fruits, sincere, impartial. Like our very salvation, the fruits of the Spirit and the wisdom that comes with them are not from us. They are gifts from above, from God, uh, so that we can walk in those works right, that God prepared for us beforehand. In addition to enabling the mission, they also serve to identify us as true followers of Christ. Every tree bears good fruit, is what Bill read earlier. By this, all people you will know, or all people will know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. So one of the ways we are called to bear these fruits, to walk in these works, to demonstrate love for one another is by rejecting the ways of the world and embracing those of Christ. And this is how we not only meet the challenges of the church, but that we own those challenges of the church. As we consider how we can respond to diatrophies or even how we can repent from being diatrophies, I challenge yourself or I challenge you to ask yourself how you can take that next step of faith. What is that next step of faith that you're being called to do as you bear good fruit? Because where the wolf is is filled with pride and, and selfishness, we are called to humility and generosity. Paul writes to the Colossians, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, 
meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has something against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you almost also must forgive. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you have been called one body and be thankful. As followers of Christ, we should imitate Christ who humbled himself even to the cross and give sacrificially even to that terrible death. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered from you, leaving you an example that, so you might follow in his steps. Jesus says, for all who humble themselves or all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We learn later in 2 Corinthians that God not only loves a cheerful giver, but that our generosity towards supplying the needs of the saints grown out of submission to Christ will end up glorifying God. So what is that next step? What are the, in the challenge to be humble and gener, generous? What is that next step of faith to which God is calling you? Maybe he's calling you to seek wisdom and counsel from, from godly sources. You know, Diotrephes rejected wisdom and rebuke. <clears throat> and we know people, uh, that when people seek and follow their own ways, that it never goes well. For the first people from Adam and Eve to Pat and Martha, uh, it, when we follow our own ways, it, it never goes well. So instead of rejecting wisdom and rebuke, we are called to seek it. Jesus, or, uh, God says in Proverbs, if you turn, if you repent, um, at my reproof, behold, I will pour my spirit into you. I will make my words known to you. Praise God that when we receive rebuke from, from other brothers and sisters, and we turn away from our own sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. And God's faithfulness and forgiveness ought to drive us to forgive others as well and to allow love to cover a multitude of sins. Maybe God's calling you to take a step towards speaking truth in love instead of slander and gossip. He says in Psalms, we hear God loves the sinner and hates the sin, and that's true, but God hates the sinner too. It says right in Psalm 4, he says, you hate all evildoers, you destroy those who speak lies. These are hard words to hear. When we, when we speak lies we are what God hates. Instead, we ought to speak truth in love. Grow up in every way to him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint by which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Pastor, Pastor Josh said in a sermon many months ago that truth without love is a lie, and love without truth is hate. So speak both together. How is the Spirit calling you to do that, to speak the truth and love? Maybe he's calling you to greater service, service for the sake of the name. Dr. Peace wished to serve himself, but we are called to serve the gospel. John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. Likewise, we must work for the sake of the name, preaching not from envy or rivalry, but from goodwill. We have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer us to live, right? Christ that lives with us. And this, this life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself 
for us. We're supposed to count everything else is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, our Lord. We're supposed to think of it as, as count it all as rubbish uh, in order that we may gain Christ instead. Our sin is our own, but our repentance and salvation are a free gift from God because the name of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we should no longer serve ourselves, but we ought to serve that same name for the sake of that name. What is the step of faith that God is calling you to to serve for the sake of the name? Maybe it's in sending and supporting our missionaries. Not just to to know that they're going out, but to be fellow workers for the truth. This is why we're encouraging, one of the reasons we're encouraging you to get involved in small groups. Uh, Because one of the ways that we're finding to get more involved with our missionaries, to be fellow workers for the truth, is to do that through the small groups. Because those small groups are able to sort of organize and support these missionaries to get to know who they are what we've been telling the missionaries as we as we commend a a small group to them and the the missionaries to that small group is is that they are going to be their their advocates for those missionaries here in the church and so when our friends from asia came back uh, the the jordans and their small group welcomed them in i got to talk uh, to, to them about hey how did we do because not, not to praise us, but we want to know, how can we support you? How can we be fellow workers for the truth? And they said it was night and day. It's not that they didn't feel love before. They just didn't know what love looked like to some extent. And so I urge you, get involved in a small group. We've got two new ones starting Wednesday and, and Thursday nights. Uh, we would love to sp- start more if there's another night that you, can, that you can be involved that would work better because this is one way that we are going to partner with our missionaries. Just got the buttons back to Africa. They need our support and our prayers. Our friends to Asia are going to be leaving at the end of the summer, and we've got friends from Italy who are coming back after that. So we want to be involved with them. Learn how you can be a fellow worker together so that we can declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the people. Third John talks about how we support missionaries, uh, how we send them out, but not by ourselves. We're doing this in communion, in, in, in the context of the church, of the gathering of the believers. This is not the individual mission. This is the church's mission, to, to make disciples of all nations, to, to send out the gospel, to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And this uh, is one of the reasons that we, we practice communion, is to remind ourselves that we are in one church, that we are members of uh, basically a family. As fellow workers for the truth, some, when we come together uh, to do that, it might seem strange, especially if, uh, if you uh, are new to, to Christianity and the, and the practice of the Lord's table. And every church does it a little bit different. For some of us uh, who grew up doing it every week, um, it, it may seem rote, just, just commonplace. And for those of us, I just want to challenge us that, uh, to think that this is not, communion is not something easy. It was uh, earth-shattering. It, it, it was difficult. It was a tough teaching, the theology behind it uh, is, was radical. 
So much so that if you, if you turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, this is when Jesus started talking in, in some of the terms that would lead towards sort of setting up for that last uh, night together with his disciples where he would institute the practice of the Lord's Supper. So starting in John chapter 6, uh, verses 48, or verse 48. He's talking to a crowd. There's a lot of people following him, include not, not just the 12 disciples, but others who were considered disciples, people who were trying to follow Jesus. And he says this to them, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna, the, which was a bread, in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This was a tough saying. You see that people started arguing about this, and it wasn't just tough for the Pharisees and the scribes and the, the leaders of the, of the religion there. It says even his own disciples struggled with it. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that none can come to, the, to me unless it is granted them by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. These days, we have a lot of discussions about whether the Lord's table should be open or closed. Right? Some like the idea of closing this table to the extreme. So not only do they say that you, you can't come to it unless you're a Christian and you've, and you've trusted in Christ, but that you're a specific flavor of Christian. You're not just one denomination, but one specific synod of that denomination, or maybe even one specific local congregation that nobody else outside of that is, is, is able to come, and that would be called a closed table. And some talk about an open table that anyone can come with the idea that, that somehow that, that will, will either uh, give uh, some special power or sometimes just that it will teach them the gospel. But I think that this whole debate is missing the entire point of, of the theology, the uh, behind this, this practice. This isn't about just getting some bread and, and, and drinking something out of, uh, out of some cup. It is about what 
this bread, what this cup represents and what it means to partake in it. The disciples didn't stop following Jesus because he spoke about eating his flesh and his blood. They said that was hard. They argued about that. But that's not what they they left. They left him because he confronted them, because he refused to water down his teaching, because he declared himself the son of God who would ascend to whence he had come, because he called them out for their disbelief and their treasonous hearts, because he said there was nothing in themselves that was worthy of God's holiness. Only what he had given, because he said that their flesh counted for nothing. Only the life-giving spirit and the word of truth. As we come to this Lord's table this morning, let us do so pondering these teachings which are hard and difficult to accept. Ask ourselves, we really believe that our flesh, our lives count for nothing? Or do we love being first? Do we really believe that our sins are so severe that they require the sacrifice of Jesus, God's own son, to cover them, to purify them, that his flesh and blood had to be put on the table for them because that was the only sacrifice that was sufficient. Do we really believe that through this sacrifice, through Jesus' death and through his resurrection to life, that he conquered not only sin but death and that those who turn from their sins and turn towards Jesus and only Jesus because he is the way and the truth and the life that we are freed from our own selfish pursuits, our love for making ourselves first and liberated into eternal, and what he says in John 10, 10, abundant life. These teachings are hard. Who can accept them? May God enable us to do that. I'm going to call our ushers forward for, for communion, and we're going to partake in this practice.